I'd like to welcome you to the Jed Hughes Podcast. Each episode will feature a unique leader and will delve into the qualities that inspire greatness, galvanize organizations, and teach the next generation of aspiring leaders. Jed ran the process that resulted in the hiring of Pete Carroll, Jim Harbaugh, Andy Reid, Masai Uzuri. Now, according to Forbes, Jed is the most connected man in sports. Happy Father's Day. This will be a unique episode. John Michael will be interviewing me for the podcast. Happy Father's Day to all of you. Enjoy. Hey, welcome, friends. For this podcast, we are doing a Father's Day special. It's been one year since my son, John Michael, came up with the idea of doing the podcast. So we felt uh, in order to uh, celebrate Father's Day, uh, it would be interesting and uh, enlightening for John Michael to interview me for this podcast. Why don't you start and talk about how after college you started to get into the professional world? Well, in college, I first, I got lucky. I got a break. One of the local coaches, high school coaches, knew my background at Gettysburg College. And at that time, I was a, uh, a phys ed teacher, health and physical education at Biglerville High School, which is outside of Gettysburg, which is where they, uh, the apple orchards, the Muslim and apple orchards. So we went to a coaching clinic in Washington, D.C., and the coach from Littlestown High School said, if you want to be a graduate assistant, you should talk to these coaches. And I asked him, I had no idea what a graduate assistant was. He said, a graduate assistant goes to their school, works with them, uh, and works on their graduate degree. So that sounded like a, an interesting idea. So what I did, there were a number of successful coaches at that time, which most of our audience probably won't know. John Ralston was the head coach at Stanford, and they had just won the Rose Bowl the year before. Bill Yeoman was at, at Houston, and they had this incredible veer offense that was very successful. And Gene Stallings was the head coach at Texas A&M. So those were the three men that I talked to. And the one who gave me the best opportunity was John Ralston, the head coach at Stanford. And he said to me, if I could get into graduate school, I could become a graduate assistant and they had just won the Rose Bowl. And um, I also had had a service obligation. I was part of the Navy uh, program and had gone away to Newport. And when I was looking to get my final physical, uh, they diagnosed me with a, a, a syndrome called Marie Tooth syndrome. And it's something that uh, is has come to fruition now in, in my in my life. So they made the right diagnosis. I got an honorable discharge. I got accepted to Stanford and then began as the sixth graduate assistant on the staff, getting ice cream and peeling oranges for Mike, Wright, Michael, uh, Mike White, the offensive coordinator, and from John Ralston. 
So what were your takeaways from your time at Stanford and how did it lead you to get to your next position? What was interesting at Stanford was that they gave me an opportunity. First of all, there were six graduate assistants, two that were there on money. I was I, I was getting no money. So I had to figure out a way to, you know, break in. So I developed some statistical information that the offensive coordinator, Mike White, really liked. So at the same time, I was the offensive coordinator for the freshman team, which was fun. Plus, during our break, we won the, the Pac-8 uh, championship at that point. There are only eight schools in the conference. And we won. So we had a break, and I was working on my master's. So they sent me to recruit. So I went. They asked me to go to uh, the San Joaquin Valley, which many of our listeners may not know, but it's it's kind of where they grow raisins, and it's really a very prodigious area as it relates to agriculture. So they asked me to cover from Bakersfield to Fresno, and when you think about you know what's that like for an East Coast guy, never been west. So they gave me a map, a high school directory, and a car from Stanford that I could use. Fortunately, Jeff Seaman was our All-American linebacker, and he'd gone to Bakersfield High School. So at Bakersfield High School, his coach had been there for 30 years. I got his phone number, and he gave me an overview of what it was like between Bakersfield and Fresno and who the really good players were. The first takeaway was how important recruiting was. The second takeaway was when you decided you were getting into coaching, coaching was a 24-7 job. It wasn't something that you just kind of did, you know, from nine to five. It was an all-consuming opportunity. And the first time I sat and watched the film with them and said that you could do this as a career, it was unbelievable. We won the Rose Bowl. John Ralston then became the head coach and general manager of the Denver Broncos. And Stanford hired the assistant, uh, Jack Christensen, who was in the Hall of Fame defensive back for the Detroit Lions. Fortunately, and it was skeptical whether he was going to hire me to be a graduate assistant, but eventually he did on the defensive side. And Norb Hecker, who had coached for Vince Lombardi and had been the head coach of the expansion Atlanta Falcons, was the defensive coordinator, and he took me under his wing, which was really helpful. He allowed me to work and coach the defensive line. At the same time, because I was working on my master's, I got an invitation from the University of Michigan to work on my Ph.D. and to get a fellowship. Fortunately, Norb Hecker, our defensive coordinator's brother, had worked for Bo Schembechler. So they made a call. And when Bo was coming to play UCLA in Los Angeles, I flew down and spent three hours with Bo Schembechler in his hotel room. It was amazing. He greeted me in his stocking feet um, and brought me into the room. And we sat and we watched football for uh, three hours, watched the football game. Uh, the game was over. We said goodbye. And then I heard from him after the, uh, Michigan had just lost a tough game to Ohio State in Columbus. He said all his graduate assistants were leaving and that was I coming back. So I was married at the time and we decided, hey, we're going to take this opportunity and come to Michigan. To answer your question, 
I guess number one, if you're going to coach, it's not about money. It's about loving what you do. Fortunately, connections help. And the opportunity to get to Michigan wouldn't have happened had Norb Hecker and not introduced me to Bo. So when your time with Bo, what are some of your favorite stories and takeaways from him? Oh, wow. Well, I, I guess Bo was intense. He, he was an incredible person. He had this high energy. He, he just was passionate about the game, passionate about his players. But now he was tough. He had a temper, uh, and he would use that temper. And he would uh, really get at My first incident that I think was really interesting it's my first year there, and uh, Bo was really upset with Denny Franklin. He was our center from uh, uh, Western Pennsylvania. So Bo went to kick him in the butt, and he fell down. Bo fell down. So all the coaches turned because they were laughing so hard at what had happened. And Bo jumped up looking to see if any of us would be looking at him to see what had happened. And um, fortunately, None of us, none of us uh, occurred his wrath. So we were fortunate in that situation. Another story, we had uh, my, my second year there, I had come in as a graduate assistant and uh, I, I'd put a, a conditioning program together that they had never done before, sent it out for the summer and started to do a conditioning program in the afternoons. And on Saturdays, we'd play softball. And Bo was a, was a baseball player at Miami of Ohio, a lefty. So he'd come and be the pitcher. He'd, he'd get more fun out of coming there and was great camaraderie with the team. Then, uh, I want to say it was my last season there, but we had a lot of people injured during training camp. So Bo decided that he was so upset with the people in the training room that he was going to have all the players that were healthy sit on the field when everybody that was hurt was going to do laps. We're sitting there, the coaches, players, and here come these people out on crutches, wheelchairs, the trainer, Lindsey McLean, pushing everybody around the field and bows on them because guys are hurt and they're not practicing. Then I, I guess the third story would be um, we had this tight end, Greg Denbor, who was six foot six, 220 pounds, and he was a tight end. And Bo was trying to get him to block harder. So what he did was he started pounding on his chest and said, Denbor, you're six foot six pounds of chicken shit. And as, ben, as Denbor was trying to protect himself, he caught Bo's chain as he lifted him up and had Bo's neck strangled with the chain. And, and here's Bo because Bo was short and Denbor's a six, six guy and Bo's getting strangled. So he sends, he throws him off the field and then you know, nothing ever happened. But that was uh, uh, kind of an interesting story. I guess the last story, probably the most emotional one was my first year at Michigan when we were playing, we had just, uh, it was my first exposure to the rivalry between Michigan and Ohio state. And we walked into that stadium 100,000 people. And this was when you only had one game on TV on Saturday. And, you know, that this was the game, right? And, and, and Bo put his arm around me. He said, 
did you ever feel anything like this? And I got the electricity in the stadium was beyond belief. I mean, you could just feel it. Your goosebumps were all over the place. We play this game, but we end up in a 10-10 tie. But our quarterback, Denny Franklin, fractures his collarbone. So now because it's a tie, the Big Ten athletic directors are going to vote to see who's going to go to the, to the Rose Bowl. And we don't get voted in. So we have a meeting that night, that afternoon, and Bo was in t- the team was in tears because we thought we outplayed them. We deserved to go. So what happened was all the athletic directors that voted against us became red-letter games. Red-letter games were games that when you came back at camp and you saw the schedule, there were some games in red. Those games in red meant you needed to win them, and you're going to do whatever you could. So in those games, when we played teams that were in red, whenever we were ahead in those games and crushing the team, he would not take the first team out. He continued to punish them for 20 years. He never forgot what Wayne Duke, the commissioner, did with the Big Ten and how he punished Michigan. So aside from that, I, I I really, really enjoyed being with Bo. I guess the last story was one in recruiting. It was like two o'clock in the morning. We're driving to see Gary Weber, who was an, uh, an All-American single-wing tailback uh, in New Jersey. And, and Bo was falling asleep at the driver's side and was foggy. And all of a sudden, he waked up and pounded me on the chest, said, where are we going? Where are we? I said, we're going to Gary Weber's house. Oh, okay. So we pulled up to the house. We ended up, mother was, everybody was still up. They gave him cheesecake. And it was a, you know, just, he was amazing. I mean, he'd come in and he'd look at us in coaching meetings and he'd say, you know, each one of you is putting another nail in my coffin. You keep sending me on these recruiting trips. You keep picking me up and I'm eating these donuts and you know, they're no good for me. So I guess that's some of my bow stories. Why don't you talk about your defensive lineman? I know all my friends have heard that one. The defensive lineman. We had, in fact, it, it, it plays back into the Rose Bowl, uh, in the, us not getting in the Rose Bowl. So during that period of time, we had had a nose tackle who'd been a, a fifth-year redshirt, a walk-on, by the name of Donnie Warner, who was five foot ten, about 200 pounds, if that. And he had played on the scout team for a number of years. The um, scout team at Michigan was, uh, it was tough because you had two teams. And during the course of practice, they'd run 120 to 130 plays against the scout team. And this wasn't thud. This was full speed. And you'd get your, I mean, you got your ass kicked. And Donnie Warner was the nose tackle. And in those days, you doubled the nose tackle a lot. I mean, he'd come up, his nose would be bleeding, he'd be, he'd be a mess. But he had, the, he had guts. I mean, the, the kid was incredibly competitive and energetic. And he was one of those energy givers on the field. No matter what was going on, no matter how hard he got hit, he'd hop up and say, hit me again. So every spring before the kids went to um, summer break, Bo would meet with each player individually. And in this one particular meeting, Donnie Warner got up, uh, and Donnie Warner said to Bo, coming into his senior year, 
I want some of your money. And Bo, taken back by that, he had his glasses on, sitting behind his desk. So he takes it. He said, this is a story that Bo tells the staff. He takes his glasses off and he comes out and he looks at Warner, stares at him. He said, Warner, I'm going to do one better than that. I'm going to put you number one on the depth chart. So when we come back in the fall, they're going to have to beat you out. And by damn, Donnie Warner was on that depth chart. Donnie Warner was the starting nose tackle. And our defense was rated number one in the country in defense against the score. And when Denny Franklin got hurt, Donnie Warner also got hurt. And he said the reason we didn't get to the Rose Bowl was because he got hurt, not because our quarterback, Denny Franklin, got hurt. So how did you end up getting to UCLA after all of this? So back then, you know, your coaching offices were so – you, all, your, all your defensive staff would be in one room uh, except the coordinator. Gary Moeller was the coordinator, uh, and Jack Harbaugh was the secondary coach. And, you know, both his sons, Jim and John, are coaches. Uh, successful coaches. Bill McCartney was the uh, outside linebacker coach, and he had had great success at the Vine Child High School in Michigan, and then it has, had went on to Colorado and won a national championship. And then Tom Reed. Tom Reed went on to Miami of Ohio and North Carolina State as a head coach. So I was the fourth person in that room, and Tom Reed got a call from uh, a coach at UCLA by the name of Dick Tomey, and Dick Tomey said, Tom, are you interested in coming to UCLA? And Tom had just left Arizona. And so Tom, in the meeting, in our room, said, hey, I just got a call from uh, UCLA. Anybody interested? And at this time, Title IX had just happened. And Title IX talked about the equality with women's sports and funding and so forth. So Don Cannon, who was our athletic director, and Bo talked. And they weren't sure whether I would... Uh, they would be able to retain me. Now, one of the things that happened during my time at Michigan, I came in as a graduate assistant. And um, my second year, Bo promoted me, which was really upsetting to some of the other coaches because they had worked a lot harder to become an assistant coach at Michigan than they felt I had. But I was an assistant coach. And so UCLA talked to me. And at that same time, Bo had had bypass heart surgery. And I went out for my meeting at UCLA and had a good meeting. Um, you know, they, they were interviewing a bunch of people. After the meeting, I went to Bo's house. He was recovering from heart surgery. And he said to me, you may want to look hard at that because I'm not sure what our coaching staff situation is going to be in terms of Title IX. So UCLA offered me the job. And I, I went back and told Bo, and uh, the interesting thing, I took the job uh, with Michigan, or with uh, UCLA, and that summer, when I came back to get my degree, Bo hosted a party for everybody. He said, I never had a coach on my staff get a PhD, so we're going to have a party for you. So it was great. I mean, we left on great terms. However, because of recruiting, those terms changed some, uh, but going to UCLA, uh, in terms of having impact, it, it was an incredible move for me coming to UCLA. So how much did your time at Stanford help you on the recruiting trail at UCLA? My recruiting really got better at Michigan because I was given players to recruit. 
And the things that I did there really impressed uh, the staff and Bo. And that's really how I got promoted because I was able to recruit players like Walt Downing. Uh, they came to Michigan and ended up being captain and All-American at a Coatesville out of Penn State's backyard. So we had unbelievable battles against Joe Paterno at that time, who was the head coach at Penn State. Uh, the thing I learned was you had to build relationships and you had to live with these guys. You know, I mean, you had to spend time with them and their families because they had to believe in you. You had to be able to convince them of the program. So recruiting was something that I, I really liked. And when I went to UCLA, it was really interesting. John Wooden had just retired and his locker was next to mine. So for many of our home football games, he took me to, to breakfast. So we got really close. And then because of his success in basketball, UCLA was seen as the basketball school in the state of California. So if you're a high profile, power five football player, USC was our rival. You, I mean, you talk about city rivalry. I mean, is that rivalry's intense. You talk about Michigan, Ohio State. Well, USC, UCLA is intense. Our challenge was that basketball players wanted to go to UCLA because Coach Wooden won 10 national championships. But football players saw USC in California. So they said, okay, we want, we're going to start Frank Gantz, led our recruiting. And we, so we started an out-of-state recruiting program. And because I was the guy who had no children, they said, you're going to do all the out-of-state recruiting except for areas in Texas. I went out and the first player, it, it was crazy because I had no idea what, what I was going to do. I had to build a plan. And we ended up recruiting that year 10 high school All-American football players. I recruited eight of them. And for, for five of my six years at UCLA, I was named by Joe Terranova as the top recruiter in the United States. Uh, we brought people like Ken Easley, a Hall of Famer, both in college and, and uh, the NFL. Lewis Sharp, an all-pro out of Detroit to Michigan. Irv Eatman, who was a first-round draft pick out of Dayton, Ohio. So we had, I think during my time at UCLA, recruited close to 45 players. 20 got drafted, three in, the and three in the first round. So my impact at UCLA uh, in terms of really knowing the families and the players was, was really, really special. When we had Easter, they'd come out to the house. We'd play softball. We'd give each one of them an Easter basket. So I had really, really close relationships uh, with the players. It, it was unbelievable. It, it was fun. That's how I met Mike Warren. My, be, my best friend, he happened to be a star on Hill Street Blues and was a two-year captain for UCLA basketball. So he used to help with recruits. The other thing was Happy Days was a really successful show at the time. It had the Fonz on it. And Ronnie Howard was a successful producer. And Jerry Paris had been a UCLA guy that I met traveling back from Hawaii on a recruiting trip. So he said, hey, on Fridays, bring your recruits over. So they'd come on the stage of Happy Days. On the dress rehearsal, they'd get the script, they'd get to meet the Fonz, all those people. So it was just an unbelievable advantage we had. And then we had great alums, Rayford Johnson, Hall of Famer, Maxine Waters, who you know people see whether they like or don't like, Kermit Alexander. Uh, we had great alums, Ted Bear, 
the Griffin family, and they'd go to dinner with the players. It was just, we built a great family environment and it helped UCLA win. I mean, you know, Terry Donahue's in the, in the Hall of Fame as a result of what we began. It was special. It was fun and was really tough to leave. Talk about getting Ken Easley all the way from Virginia to UCLA. Well, that was, that was interesting because when I flew into Ch- to uh, Norfolk, Virginia, I was looking at famous Amos Lawrence, who was a running back. And when I went to his high school, the coach was really a good guy. He said to me, listen, the best player around here is the Chesapeake. His name's Ken Easley. You need to see him. He happened to be all state as a quarterback and as a defensive back. So I went to watch him play basketball. He was an incredible athlete. And at the same time, his coach in basketball had a paddle and would hit all the players except one. <laughs> he wouldn't go near Ease. Ease had kind of this awe about him, about, hey, I'm this individual that's, I'm good at what I do. And um, so I met him after practice, and he said, why don't you come over to the house? So I came over to the house, and his mother was delightful. They had three children, and um, his dad came home. Now, his dad had been in the Marines, and his dad's nickname was Bullwhip. He was a mason, and easily used to work with him when he was young. He used to carry bricks, do all sorts of stuff. So he was used to really working hard. But when I shook his dad's hand, I've never shaken a hand like that in my life. It's like picking up a brick. His hand is that was that hard, was that tough. And then we went into the living room, and he turned the lights off. Here we are sitting in this house, and it's the three of us. And I'm just about ready to talk about UCLA. And his father starts and says, UCLA is my school. He said, look, if you talk about great black athletes, they go to UCLA. Jackie Robinson, Arthur Ashe, Kareem. It's, he said, that's my school. That's where I want my son to go. And Ease didn't know any of this. His father never told him any of those stories. So um, it was interesting when head coaches would come, when Woody Hayes, would Joe Paterno, Bo Schembecker would come to their house, his father wouldn't go to any of the meetings. The only meetings he'd go to was, was, was the one when Terry Donahue showed up, who was the head coach at UCLA at the time. The other thing that happened was that Easley had a great trip prior to our a blue bonnet bowl game against Alabama. And in that game against Alabama, we got, we got smoked. So he was starting to waver on whether or not he was going to come to UCLA. I remember going back into the house and he and his father stood up when his father said, you're going to UCLA. And uh, easily wasn't that convinced in his mind that he was going to do that, but eventually got to the point that, he decided to come, and from the first time he came on campus, the second game of the season, he started. Started every game from that point on. Most impactful player I've ever been around. Hardest hitter, smart, just loved the game. And, I mean, look, he's had major health issues 
uh, eight years into his professional career, they discovered he had uh, bad kidneys and had to, had to go on dialysis. He's had several kidney transplants. He's still on dial dialysis. He's had major uh, CTE issues. So he, he took a beating. The way he played was so physical. And the way the game was played back then is a lot different than the way the game's being played today. So in your time in college at those three places, what were the hardest places to play at with the environment was? Well, first, I guess you'd have to put Ohio State at the top of the list because it was really interesting. The difference between going to Ohio State when you were playing, when you represented Michigan and when we were at UCLA and went to Ohio State. When, we, when we'd pull in in our bus, the fans would try to turn the bus over. They'd be rocking the bus. They'd be shaking the bus. Then the other thing that happens at Ohio State is that the locker rooms are on opposite sides of where the sideline is. So what Woody would want to do, he'd want to hold his team until your team got halfway to your bench. Then he'd release the team and the team would come out and try to run your team over. So Bo knew that. He knew that. And he outweighed Woody in, our, in the one game that I was with the team. So they, the announcers kept saying for the teams to come out. It was on national TV. So eventually Ohio State came out, and we came out after Ohio State. But the fans, I mean, it was, it was nuts. I mean, the things they said and how, what they did, I mean, it was, it was just intense. It was loud. It was, it, it was really, really difficult. Uh, I, I guess I'd say there are three places. One that you wouldn't think about would be in Pullman, Washington, Washington State, where the fan, the stands were like aluminum. So even though there are only 35,000 people or whatever, they could bang on those, those aluminum stands. And you couldn't hear. I mean, they went nuts. I mean, in Pullman, there's not a lot of things to do. So the players, so the fans that come to the game are really, you know, probably you know, had a little bit of alcohol and, and a little bit wild, but it was nuts. Uh, and then I guess the third one was playing at Tennessee because, you know, Johnny Majors was the coach, Hall of Fame coach, and we're playing in 1978. And uh, we're playing them end of the game, and it's really close. And all of a sudden, the headphones went out on our side. So normally, you know, you have a headphone on because the people upstairs can tell you down in distance, you can talk about your defensive call. So all of a sudden, the head so headphones went out. Now, there's a stadium, Neyland Stadium, seats like 98,000 people. So, again, loud, crazy, but home field advantage. Now, they're turning your headsets off. So you're trying to get calls. You're trying to do stuff, trying to figure out whether the ball's on the hash, not on the hash, how many yards you got to do. So that was a, an interesting uh, state. We ended up winning the ball game, but that was a, a tough place to play. So then now you go to the NFL you're in Minnesota. How is Bud Grant? Uh, Bud Grant was amazing. Bud Grant, in terms of sense of humor, was he was a quiet, funny, funny man. Uh, to give you some stories about Bud Grant, uh, first I went up there and I got to his office, and there was this was a new building they had that looked out onto a field where deer would come up. And he had all this food there that the deer could eat. But there was no pictures in his office about football. Everything was hunting. He was an avid fisherman and hunter. 
He had dogs that, that he'd bring to practice on Saturdays. So I get to Minnesota, and, and we, they're, they're huge boots. And I asked him what they were. He said they were our coaching boots. So all our coaching equipment was from the L.L. Bean catalog because Bud was frugal. And I'll give you some examples of how he was frugal. Based on coaching gear, first of all, everything you wore had to be official issue. So he was in the military. He was in the Navy and a and, and tremendous athlete, one of the greatest athletes in the University of Minnesota history playing sports. So he said official issue. So, I mean, if you wanted to wear a T-shirt, it wasn't given to you by the vice. You couldn't wear it as an assistant coach in the building. Nobody could. So you had that. Then when you traveled, you had to wear a tie. And he made everybody wear a tie. And Bud only had one tie. He had a pair of hush puppy shoes. And at the end of each flight, players would get two sandwiches when you got on the plane after the game. So Bud, at the end of the, at the, end of the flight, had a box. And he would collect all the sandwiches that hadn't been eaten because he had a big family. So he'd bring those home. Then uh, when we had uh, our pregame meals at night, he loved nuts. So we had these Sundays. And all the Sundays had pecans, almonds, walnuts. So he'd go around and he'd collect all the nuts that were left over in three separate bags. Here's your head coach you know, doing that which was really nuts. Then my first year there, we're in the dome. And it was an experience because Bud was huge about the outdoors. You could never, you know, wear gloves. And Minnesota gets cold now. You're getting 10 below zero. And that's not the wind chill. That's the temperature. So what Bud would do when we, in our first indoor game, they hired a fellow by the name of Crazy George, who'd been a cheerleader for a, down in Houston in the Astrodome. And, and his job was to bang on cans and make noise behind the visiting team's bench. But, you know, I, when we played, as I mentioned, official issue, one of the things with the Vikings, you had to wear black shoes and you had to stand at attention. So Bud would practice, have you practice those things during, during uh, camp. What happens, here's our first game. We're playing Tampa Bay, who'd won the division. And Crazy George comes out to cheer, and he's in white tennis shoes. So I'm on the headset with him, along with the other coaches that are up there. And he says, watch this. So he taps Crazy George on the shoulder and says, you can't cheer in those white shoes. And so all of a sudden, Dennis Ryan, our equipment guy, you see all these shoes flying out of the, out of the uh, chest. And Crazy George has black shoes on, finally, and he's cheering. So after the game. We win, but Bud says nothing about our win. He just said, how about what I just did to Crazy George? Is that great? So he, he did that. Then he always felt the games had been dictated by the office, that the Vikings had lost a really tough game against the Dallas Cowboys where there was offensive interference, and it wasn't called, and Drew Pearson made a catch that kept the Vikings out of the Super Bowl. So Bud – before a game, the official, two officials come in to, to check the time and, and go through things. So Bud would sit on the stool and never look at the officials. 
Merrill Swanson was our PR guy. So everything would be relayed through him. So the officials would come in and said, Coach Grant, we have exactly 1050. And Merrill Swanson would say, Coach Grant, it's 1050. And Bud would look back at him and say, it's 1050. He continued to chew his gum and, and, and do nothing else. So during the game, you know, people used to think Bud was really calm. The uh, amount of language that he used wouldn't be able to be. They turn the audio off on the sideline today based on how he'd get after the, get after the officials. Uh, the other thing was that he had a, uh, in training camp, he, he had two things that affected him from, uh, from college. One was he never wanted to get to the locker room early. So he would not let, so we'd have a, a 12 o'clock start and you weren't allowed to leave the hotel until 11. So no time for stretching, no time. I mean, so guys are flying in there and all that stuff. And Bud's answer to that, it was interesting. He said, look, we're not going to do team stretching. We, I don't believe in it. He said, everybody has a different way to stretch and get loose. And his story was, have you ever seen a bank robber pull a muscle? And that was, that's what he told the team. And you know, when we go to training camp, we're the last team to go because he didn't like training camp. And we'd practice. Even the day of the game, we'd have a practice. But what he would do was he would set a time. He knew that players would want to get out early so they may go get home and see their girlfriend before the game. He didn't want that to happen. So what he would do is he would say, okay, we're going to leave at a certain time. And he'd come out. The cars would be lined up based on seniority. He says, I've called the state police. They know they're on, you're on their way. And the state police, you'd, you'd go up and there'd be players pulled over trying to beat the system. We're butted and let the police know and the players are trying to beat the system and get home and see their girlfriend before the game. But Bud but, but would not do that. On April Fool's, he'd bring bats in, put them in the ladies' restroom, put snakes in, he'd do all sorts of stuff. So he was, uh, he, he was a, unique, a unique individual. Why don't you say the unique way he gave water breaks? Well, I was the rookie coach on the staff, and it would be my job to listen. Uh, we'd be listening to what the ranchers, Bud believed that the only people who really knew about how to water and take care of uh, human beings and cattle were the ranchers because their life blood was making sure they didn't get dehydrated and die. So depending on whether it was a warning, severe or extreme, would depend on how many water breaks the team would get during, the, uh, during preseason. So that was crazy. I mean, back at that time, Don Shula didn't give water breaks. So we're talking about, you know, back in the uh, early 80s, we're having water and doing those things. They're not common practice like they are today. But that was how we did it. I mean, it was, it was our job to um, <laughs> let Fred Zambaletti know, okay, these are how many water breaks you're going to do. And it was based on the cattle warning. So then you go to Pittsburgh for Chuck Knoll and that staff. What was that like? First of all, Bud, you know, normally 
when Bud had several years left, or a year left on his contract, they would automatically renew it. Well, we started the season really good. We started the season six and two. We looked like we were really going to be outstanding. And then we finished the season two and six. So we ended up eight and eight. And Mike Lynn, our general manager, convinced the owner, Max Winter, not to give Bud the extension. So Bud decided he was going to retire, which shocked everybody. The logical candidate for the job was Jerry Burns, who'd been his offensive coordinator, had been the head coach at Iowa under Forrest Everstrevsky, a Hall of Fame, tremendous coach. But uh, they decided to go with Les Steckel. Les Steckel had been a Marine. He'd been this gun-ho guy. uh, And he took over. He named uh, a friend of his who had been the linebacker coach, the defensive coordinator. And they were only going to give one-year contracts. So at that time, when I was in, at UCLA, I had the good fortune to befriend Bud Carson, who had been the defensive coordinator with the Steelers during the Steel Curtain days and was the defensive coordinator with the Rams. So when they had training camp during my days at UCLA, I'd go visit Bud and spend time with him. And uh, when uh, this happened, Pittsburgh had just lost their defensive coordinator, Woody Woodenhofer, who was going to take, uh, take a head coaching job. So I talked to Bud, and Bud called Chuck. And Chuck brought me in for an interview. It was an incredible interview. I've never been interviewed uh, or like that because Chuck would take his, his jacket off. You'd get down, and you'd get the same foot, same shoulder. You'd get on the board. It was an incredible in-depth interview. And uh, he was an incredible human being in terms of how smart he was. This guy could coach everybody's position better than the coach. And when you coached with Chuck, your first training camp, he was in all your drills. He would correct you, and you'd have to push him out of the way. And until he knew you knew how to coach, he would then leave and allow you to coach your position. But we became really good friends. You know, We had a staff that had Hall of Famers on it. You know, I was fortunate to work with Tony Dungy, uh, who was the defensive coordinator, and, and Joe Green. And uh, it was the three of us. So back then, our staff was three. You know, now they have six, eight people maybe working on defense and so forth. But it was really it was a, it was a, you know, a, a great opportunity working with Chuck. And, and we became really close. My dad died, which was really horrible, tough. And uh, Chuck was really, really close to me. And um, it was a, it was just fun. We'd go to training camp and we'd take walks together and just talked about a lot of different things. Um, so it, that experience was tremendous. And, you know, I got fired from the Steelers and probably the most painful, other than losing my dad, most painful part of my life, losing that job. Dan Rooney made the decision to terminate me. It was a tough decision. Uh, Chuck didn't want to do it because we'd been really close. But at the end, you know, I, it, it obviously the Cleveland thing happens, which we, I guess we'll talk about. But, you know, being able to get out of coaching and, and do what I've been doing has been uh, you know, another really interesting chapter in my life. So Cleveland doesn't work out. And then what happens? Cleveland, we're a game from the Super Bowl game you know and they decide they're going to make a change and bud carson is the head coach who i'd mentioned that uh, 
I'd met, you know, brought me on to coach the secondary. And I mean, we had that, we had our, our secondary, the defense is still the number two in defense against the score in Cleveland Brown history. We had a great defense, but they let me go. I mean, during a ton, 10 month period of time, I got fired twice, went through a divorce. My dad died. So it was really tough emotionally for me. And my personality probably wasn't the best. Probably lost my temper too much. I probably was too impatient. Players didn't like that. They didn't like my style of coaching, some of them. I was pretty aggressive, probably a little bit more like Bo. Uh, and some players in the NFL didn't necessarily respond to that. So then what happens after Cleveland? How do you get to where you are now? I get advice. I need to go back to Pittsburgh. And if that's where I want to live, call these people. The hardest thing I've ever had to do is to try to get a job when I didn't have a job. I went on 186 interviews 186 in three months. I was doing eight, nine a day. I go in and these were, I didn't, I never asked for a job. I went in and talked about three or four things that I thought I could help a company with. In fact, I had a PhD, uh, the fact I'd been around leadership and coaching and so forth. There were two people that were the most helpful. Carl Grafenstadt was at the Hillman Company. And he introduced me to J.R. Philp, who uh, gave me some opportunities to speak, and they paid me. I was about out of money at this point. It's in September. And I needed, I was living in a, in a, in a studio apartment in Allegheny Center. And I was out of, I had a house still in Cleveland, hadn't sold, so I was strapped for money. And uh, I got this chance to speak, got some more money. And then the, the good fortune. I met Vin Sarney. Vin Sarney happened to be the CEO of Pittsburgh Plate and Glass. My relationship with him, uh, he's like a second father to me. The advice he's given me and so forth. But he introduced me to a, a gentleman by the name of Vince Donnelly, who owned an outplacement company and who had just bought an assessment company called Walter Clark. It was an adjective checklist that helped define what your natural tendencies were. And because I had a PhD, they brought me in as the general manager. I was there for eight years. We grew the business. We put together an incredible board made up of four of the past presidents of the American Psychological Association. We had Chuck Knoll on the board. We had Ted Stern, who had been um, this incredible leader at Westinghouse. And uh, we had Bill Palm, who was a uh, African-American who understood psychology and the like. And this was our board. And the company was growing. And I tried to buy the company. Unbeknownst to me, the owner invited me to lunch. And at that lunch, he was sitting there with two lawyers and they fired me. But at this time, my relationships in the business world were really good. So I had a number of different opportunities. I had a chance, a fellow by the name of Mark Elliott, who was working for LaMalee and John Johnson hired me to open an office in Pittsburgh. And um, I began on how to do search, executive search. It was an interesting process. My first search I ever did was for the uh, general manager of precision cast parts up in Oregon. And so back at that point, you had to do all your research, you had to find people, you had to make phone calls. It was tough. It was hard. But when I eventually gained traction, uh, got some things going, 
and got recruited to uh, Spencer Stewart. And uh, the Spencer Stewart piece was really, it was unbelievable training in terms of how to really run a search, how to deal with, at that point, I eventually moved myself up to being the CEO and board practice. And uh, we did, so the ability to relate to and talk with CEOs and to present information, Tom Neff is kind of the, the idol. He and Jerry Roach were kind of the people in executive search. And Tom Roach, or, uh, Tom Neff and Bob Damon were two people who really helped me learn how to conduct a search well. And coupled with my recruiting ability that I learned in college, was able to you know, make things work. I liked sports, so I had the opportunity to move into sports because we had a pitch with the Green Bay Packers. Their CEO had left. So they had, I want to say, 10 firms pitching it. So I went in there with one of our colleagues, and because of my coaching background and knew what it was like, they hired us. And we did the search, and we hired Mark Murphy. And that kind of started uh, the trend in sports for me, and we, we continued to do a number of searches. And then uh, Bob Damon, who's a very good friend, uh, convinced me to come to Corn Ferry nine years ago. And, uh, you know, we kind of exploded our practice. You know, I've had a lot of have, have had a lot of impactful hires. It's been a lot of fun. What would you say your favorite search to do was? I'd have to say the first one with the Packers, because it was the one that got us started. We had a large we had a large search committee. We had to present to the board. You know, the Packers are, are, have a different ownership structure than anybody else in the NFL. They're owned publicly, so they have a board. They have an executive committee. So we had to make a presentation to their board. I think we interviewed 12 different candidates. And then it came down to several people. And uh, Mark Murphy was the perfect candidate for them. First of all, his demeanor. He grew up in Buffalo. So his demeanor is one that he's not, you know, he, he's not in your face. He's a, he's a humble, genuine, sincere leader. He'd been the captain of the Washington Redskins when they won Super Bowls. He had an MBA and a law degree uh, and had been part of the Players Association. And at that point, there looked like there may be a strike. So having somebody with NFL experience that had been on both sides, he'd been a player rep as well as working for the association. Uh, it gave the Packers an impactful person. And I, I think that was the one that really really got us started. It was really exciting from my perspective. When you're doing these searches in sports for coaches and executives, what are the two or three qualities that overlap most of the hires and are looked at as most important for people trying to get jobs? I think, first of all, you know, a person has to be strategic in their thinking. So strategic, bright. They need to be adaptable. In today's environment, things change all the time. So if you're set in stone and not willing to adapt, that's difficult. You need to also be able to build relationships. Relationships are critical. If you're going to be successful, being strategic, being adaptable, and being a relationship builder, I think are three of the most important qualities that you need to have. Along with that, an organization to be successful needs alignment. Alignment means 
that the key people in the organization, let's say we're doing a, a head coach, uh, that the head coach, the general manager, the owner need to all be in sync in terms of what the goals are. When they're not, you have dysfunction. When they are, you're successful. I mean, the Steelers, you, know, you go back, I mean, they've had three coaches in 50 years. Stability, and it's the hard thing to do for owners, especially people coming in that aren't in sports, for them to learn the fact you don't, you got to give people a chance, I think is something that's really important. So how did all that coaching experience help you coach youth basketball and baseball teams? <laughs> well, I think if I asked you, I'm not sure you said I'd, I would have done a very good job. I think the uh, the interesting piece is that I just loved coaching, and whether it was your your group, I coached you guys, your teammates, the same way I coached guys. I I was demanding. Uh, I tried to be skill oriented, team oriented, and wanted your team and yourself to play up to your ability and bring a level of competitiveness and spirit that would carry on in terms of how you would execute, how you would play, you know, just the camaraderie of playing together and, and being disciplined, doing things you needed to do and, and learning the work habits. Because as you know, having recovered from all your injuries, it's easy to give up. And I would say in one thing that uh, about you is you've got this incredible desire to be successful and whether it's academically or athletically, I mean, you just continue to, to work through difficult obstacles. So I'm very proud of you, although I had to stop coaching you uh, at a certain point when, when it felt like it wasn't the right relationship. I needed to be more of your dad than I needed to be your coach. And mom was uh, instrumental in, in pulling me back. But uh, look, my greatest Great. If you ask me what I'm proudest of, it's the fact that mom gave me an opportunity to be a dad. Unbelievably rewarding and at times frustrating, but I'm sure it's been frustrating for you as it's been for me. How different were elementary school team basketball film sessions to your NFL team ones? I only did one session with a video with, with you and your team. You guys didn't like it. You didn't like the fact that I'd stop the film, run it back, point things out. So, yes, they were very different. You guys just wanted to watch the game. I wanted to point things out on how you could improve and get better. So there was a disconnect there. There was an alignment. You guys wanted to enjoy watching it. I was trying to understand ways to be able to show you how to get better and, and the like. I'm John Michael Hughes, and thank you for listening to our Father's Day episode. I hope all the fathers out there have a great day.